So telling the story of your business more so than telling me about features and functions of your solution. A lot of founders focus on features and functions, and they should be focusing on use cases and stories. I, I often use the expression, people have a hard time recalling concepts and statistics, but they have a very easy time recalling stories and people. So tell the story of your business and the problem you're solving and the solution you're bringing to market as a story that has people involved. So make up a persona and tell me about that person who's experiencing the problem you're solving and the solution you're bringing to them that will help them overcome that problem. That will resonate much better than telling me about all the features and giving me a bullet list of features and functions of your, your solution. Hello, dreamers and action takers. Welcome to another episode of Want Money, Got Money. I'm your host, Sam Kamani. My today's guest is Jeff Wallace. He is an investor and entrepreneur and founder of two different accelerators. And one of those accelerators is really interesting because it is completely remote, as if it was made for 2020. And Jeff has kindly offered 40% off his accelerator for any of the listeners of want money got money podcast so what i've done is i have put the link down in the description where you can click and get that offer and also before we get into it i have another announcement i have just started an instagram where i would be putting all these notes and putting more info on all the guests and how you can connect with the guests on my podcast and how you can connect with me so just go to instagram and search want money got money and you would find it having said all that without any further ado let's get into it so jeff welcome to the show it's great to have you here and i know you have so many insights and so many stories from all the startups you have either worked with or worked on over the last at least i would guess two decades that I'd love to know, find out more about it. But first, what are you up to these days? Yeah, thanks, uh, Sam, for having me today, too. I love, I love having conversations with people in the ecosystem of starting, helping startups to build their businesses. So it's always good to connect. And I love the global nature. Here, we, you and I are halfway around the world from one another. And, and yet we get to have these, these lovely opportunities to, to support each other and help each other, et cetera. So thanks for having me here. So um, you asked what I'm up to these days. For me, the last, I'd say, five years since about 2015, my full-time efforts is in supporting startups around the world. And I have been a, a founder or co-founder, I should say, of uh, two specific startup accelerators, one that is entering our 11th cohort. So that one's going quite nicely. We've had over... Uh, just short of 150 companies that have graduated, and um, that's going very nicely. And then the other one is more of a virtual. That one is more traditional. It's located mm -hmm. here in the Bay Area. And then the other one is more virtual, completely virtual, called Silicon Valley in Your Pocket. And that's been going really nicely as well. Who knew, of course, we were all going to be quarantined all around the world and kind of in lockdown mode, but the benefit to us is that we built this platform to be entirely virtual. And so it's allowed us to continue to provide the great coaching and mentoring, if you will, acceleration 
to founders all over the world without having to lose a step at all because we were built for the virtual kind of environment. It's turned out quite nicely. We've had over 100 companies now in the last year um, wow. from over 23 countries. So it's, uh, it's been nice. We're almost at our second dozen companies, our countries, I should say, that we've helped support founders across. So it's been really exciting to be able to have that kind of broad visibility to the startup ecosystem around the world. So it is truly global in its nature, I would say. Um, <clears throat> Indeed, more of our members are non-U.S. based than those that are U.S. based. It's it's really quite a, a good. It's quite a good global program for that purpose. Yeah, and you have the physical accelerator as well that you have done for the last little while. Yeah. How did you get started? How does one even get started in this whole ecosystem? What was your journey like? Yeah, and I'm glad you asked the question that way because I think everyone's journey is very subjective or personal yes. to them. I was a serial entrepreneur from the mid-1990s up until 2011. I got recruited to join a large corporate, which also was very global in nature. It was a systems integrator of very large yes. systems integrator. And I was brought into what I would call an intrapreneurial role, a very entrepreneurial type of role within this large corporation to start a new group within that company around mobile technology. And so I did that for just about two years. And as I like to say, that's when they, they reminded me that I really prefer working with startups and not large corporates, no, nothing wrong with large yes. corporates. I just have an affinity for startups and startup founders and that kind of innovative uh, culture and mindset. Yeah. So in 2015, I left that world altogether and went full time. I became an investor and a co-founder of the local accelerator here in the Bay Area, not really knowing how, how it would go or what I would be doing, but it just turned out we recruited our first cohort. I got to meet a lot of really interesting founders. It was more traditional in the beginning where we had a co-working space and we had cohorts of about 15 companies each. And so we would have uh, each of the co-founders also contributed time to coaching and mentoring the startups that came into our cohort. And so I really enjoyed that aspect of the business, working with a variety of founders in their different businesses. I didn't work with all of them, but I worked with several of, of, uh, of the companies in each cohort, as do my partners. They work with several as well. And so we get to cover a nice, uh, broad opportunity for of backgrounds and experiences that we bring to the, the companies. And then in 2018, late 2018, I had met yet another at that time. I had many, but it was a foreign founder from South Africa who had found his way to the U.S. Yeah. He had lived in New York for a while. He had lived in the Bay Area for a bit, and he had uh, applied to our accelerator. And we decided that he represents something very common, which is a foreign founder trying to get themselves to Silicon Valley to try to have the dream, if you will, raise yes. capital, find investors, grow their business, etc. And they spend a lot of resources they really don't have. Yeah. It's hard to come by resources. And so he and I decided to jointly create a business uh, virtual acceleration program to support founders just like himself. And then I brought in a business partner of mine from the local accelerator and the three of us launched that program in 2019 and we were really excited in uh, late 2019 just late last year we partnered with uc berkeley and uc berkeley 
offers a Spanish language version of Silicon Valley in your pocket. And uh, we're really excited. They launched the first cohort right at the beginning of COVID, uh, that kind of April-ish time frame. And it went from April through uh, the end of June, maybe into July even. But they've completed a Spanish language version of our program. So we're really excited by that partnership. Yep. And it was great to see the engagement from multiple countries across Latin America and the founders that live within those countries and their enthusiasm for taking a program like ours. And so that was really exciting. And of course, we continue to run the English language offering my partners and I. Yeah. And so it's just been very exciting to, to do that. So my journey, it, it really a little bit of understanding opportunity when it presented itself to me more so than anything else. There was no plan to do these things. It just was opportunistic and it's transpired this way, but I've been really happy with how it's been going. Oh, that's great. I have a few questions about Silicon Valley in your pocket and how do you choose founders or what is the criteria? Yeah. So generally speaking, we are what I would call pre-series A, so seed yep. or pre-seed stage. So we're more stage-oriented than industry. We're not industry-focused. In fact, mm-hmm. we say we are industry agnostic. We are stage-focused. In addition, we are the type of company. So, for example, there are a few types of companies that we would discourage from joining yep. only because our focus is on those companies that can be attractive to third-party investors. And so there are certain types of businesses, for example, a lifestyle business. Nothing wrong with a lifestyle business. It just might not really be as attractive to a third-party investor. As yep. an example of a lifestyle business, I'll just use, say, a taco truck, a mm-hmm. lunch truck that serves tacos. Could be a great business. Could be very fun. And it could be very fruitful in yep. terms of returns, etc. However, it's unlikely that a third party like a venture capital type investor or an angel investor in the traditional sense is going to look at that as the, the type of investment they're enthusiastic about. So lifestyle yeah. businesses, we tend to shy away from. Similarly, services businesses that tend not yeah. to have the multiples on valuation. Um, like agencies. Yeah, agencies or even coding shops like development, yes. you know, software development shops, basically people that are selling uh, labor at an hourly rate, those yeah. types of whatever business, consulting, coding, agency business, those types of businesses, again, they don't have, in general terms, they don't provide the same kinds of returns or, or valuations as other. It's, um, it's scalability. It's very hard scalability to scale. Scalability is challenging. Yes. Absolutely. Because it's people-based. It's not technology-based, yes. right? It's easier to scale a cloud-based software offering with one or two people or 10 people in the company than it is to scale a consulting by the hour kind of business. Those you always require people for. Those are labor businesses. So we look for those kind of tech-enabled businesses. And I emphasize enabled because it doesn't have to be a tech company. I have companies that operate in every industry and they leverage technology, but they're not necessarily pure tech companies. So those are the kinds of companies we mostly focus on. Excellent. That gives a very clear view of what you guys choose and pick and all that. So that's great. You have worked with founders in Silicon 
who are based in Silicon Valley or grew up in that sort of culture. And you have worked with so many international founders from all around the world. What is the key difference do you see between the ones based there as well as the based overseas? Yeah, that's a great question. And that comes up fairly common, a question for me to address because I do work in so many different environments and different cultures. So there's, there's a couple of things that I think make Silicon Valley, with respect to the startup ecosystem, just I'm going to only address it from that perspective. But one of yeah. the things is the, I often say it this way, failure is not just accepted, it's expected. Now, yeah. that may sound easy to say, but I'll tell you, you try taking that approach in maybe more of an Asian culture, failure in business is not as accepted. Um, no. It's not as Or just in life, it's not. Yeah, or grades or school. Yeah, it's difficult to come by that attitude of, oh, that's okay. And I really emphasize the expected part of my statement because it's not just that failure is accepted. Failure is expected because I think people here have the mindset, which I agree with completely, that you learn more in failure than you do in success. If you do something and you have an expected outcome and that expected outcome occurs, you just keep going. You don't think about it again. It's when you do something with an expected outcome and that expected outcome does not occur, that's when you take the time and the moment to pause and look back and reflect, why didn't the outcome we expected happen? And that's where the learning is going to occur. You're going to be able to uh, do a post-mortem of some sorts and understand why didn't that happen the way we had expected and planned for it to happen. So... I believe the openness to failure, the expectation of failure and acceptance of it is a big difference. I also think here in Silicon Valley, there's much more of an openness. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is if I ask a company in, say, Eastern Europe, if I'm talking to a founder in Eastern Europe, and this is a general statement. It's not every founder, for sure. There are exceptions to everything. Um, But if I ask an Eastern European founder, potentially again from maybe from the Asian markets, if I say, hey, share your intellectual property, let me understand that. And um, in Silicon Valley, there's not a big orientation towards signing NDAs anymore. People don't like signing on disclosure agreements. I'll come back to that in a moment as yes. to why. I have my thought as well on that. I will, <laughs> but anyway, <Yeah>. continue. <laughs> I, I will share why that is. But when, you know, normally the first question we'll get out of those kinds of foreign founders, not the mm-hmm. local even foreign to Silicon Valley, meaning it could mm-hmm. still be in the U.S. It could just be in the East Coast yes. or the Middle East, the Mid-East, Mid-West, yes, West, not Middle yes. East of, yeah, of yeah. the world, not at the uh, countries, the states in the middle mm-hmm. of the U.S. Even those folks have a different attitude. But they'll ask us to sign an NDA. Now, the reason they're doing that is they fear that if they share anything with you, you're going to steal it and run with it. Now, I'm not saying there's no bad characters. There's bad characters and bad actors all over the place that are going to do you a bad things just because that's what their nature is. But in general, you're not going to have that problem in in this market. And the more you share with people, particularly advisors and coaches and mentors, et cetera, the more they can help you. Absolutely. There's an openness to doing that I find in the Silicon Valley area that I do not find in founders from really anywhere else. And I even mean it in other areas and regions of the U.S. or other regions of the world. I find them to be much more closed and protective of their idea. They don't want to share much because they're concerned that you'll steal their idea and run away with it. 
Yep. So those are a couple of big differences that I see in Silicon Valley founders versus others. The reason why I wanted to share is that people want us to build products for them for my main business, apart from the podcast, what I do. And as soon as they ask me for an NDA, I immediately know that person is a completely new, fresh founder who has no experience of working in a startup, who has never done anything, build a startup, because the whole proof of the pudding is in the execution, not in the idea takes five minutes. You can go to Reddit or Quora and generate like a thousand ideas in an hour. It's, ideas are worthless by themselves. So basically, I agree with you. Execution yeah. is everything. I agree. Yes. And NDA. As soon as they ask me for an NDA, I know where the founder stands pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I know the level of experience. Here, investors here don't want to sign NDAs because Silicon Valley has no shortage of deal flow and, and startups yes. seeking support, financial and other. And so what happens is if I have, literally I get, I personally get maybe dozens a month, but I have colleagues that get hundreds a month yes. of plans coming to them or people saying, hey, here's my executive summary, please invest. There are similarities. And the concern is if I signed an NDA with every company, everyone would sue me because they'd think, yeah. oh, you are working on that because of my stuff. And I may have forgotten long ago, I may never have even opened up their email, but I might've had two or three other companies that have something similar. And I can't sign NDAs with every company because I would be sued by everybody. They'd all think I'm stealing their IP or their ideas and dealing with others on it. And that's never the case. I would never do that just as a professional. I wouldn't do that. It would burn my reputation. If I ever did that even one time, I'd be yeah. done. You know, I'd be done as a business person in this profession. But that's the problem with signing NDAs. And then you run into those founders that struggle with how much, should I, how do I share this then? And how much should I share? And so I often say to people, exactly to your point, Sam, if, you're, if sharing your idea is enough for me to completely undermine the viability of your business, you don't actually have a business. Yeah. Because it's all in the execution. You have to have something unique and differentiated in your execution. And you have to be able to outmaneuver and outcompete and out-execute competition. Don't expect no competition, but you better be able to beat the competition. And so that includes the idea and the execution of the idea. Oh, 100%. Couldn't agree more. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah I don't know. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a thing that all the, all these founders want in NDA. And if it's, as you said, if it is so replicatable, your idea, <laughs> then maybe you need to think of something else. And once your idea is developed, once you have built an MVP, you have to advertise it to get users. And what yeah. are you going to get everyone, show them a Facebook ad and not tell them what it is and then get them to sign an NDA? <laughs> no, yeah. in fact, you'd, be have to, you'd have to go and shout from the rooftop that this is what your product is and this is what it does and why it's unique and what is unique Absolutely. selling point and why you should use it. But yeah, anyway. Well, one, of things, one of the, th no, listen, you and I are violently in agreement here. One of the things that we share a lot in our Silicon Valley in your pocket curriculum is yes. an we emphasize defensibility and differentiation. What is differentiated and what is defensible about your 
business, and I'm emphasizing the word business versus idea, because I don't care if you have the exact same idea as 10 other companies. Do you have something in your business model, in your go-to-market strategy, et cetera, in your pricing model that is differentiated and defensible? I'll give a very simple example. Here in the United States, I know you've lived here for a while, so you're probably familiar with Southwest Airlines, the low-frills airline. Southwest Airlines is one of my favorite airlines for a couple of reasons. I travel a ton, and as you do as a business person, plans change. Just in yes. life, plans change. And it, it, interesting timing. This week, a couple of the majors are trying to change these policies. But if you're on United Airlines, if you're on American Airlines, if you're on the larger carriers, yeah. Delta Airlines, there's change fees. There's, you want to check a bag? There's baggage fees. There's fees for everything. Yeah. Southwest Airlines says... No change fees, no baggage fees, no problem. They don't care. They understand. Now, they can do that because their business model was set up to accommodate that. They're not focusing on all the revenue streams coming from those you know, kinds of fees, whereas the other airlines make so much money from those fees, it's very difficult for them to change that. Now, again, this week, and I just saw emails this week from both United and American that they're waiving change fees. Maybe forever, who knows? I never believe anything that says forever. Um, yeah. <laughs> but they're trying to change. And that's a business model that has won Southwest a lot of loyalty because people say, hey, I don't know if I can absolutely go at that day at that time. I might have to change something. I had one fare on United Airlines. I was flying to L.A. from San Francisco, a very short flight. I think the flight was $150 round trip. It was a very quick and easy yeah. Deal takes about an hour each way. I had to make a change. Instead of leaving on the 8 a.m. flight to get there for my meeting, the person said, oh, something's come up. Can we meet in the afternoon? So I said, sure, I'll switch my flight to the 12 noon flight. I called United. I said, can I switch from the 8 a.m. flight to the 12 noon flight? They said, that'll be a $200 change fee, and you'll have to pay the fare difference. I said, the whole fare was $150. <laughs> That's yes. the mindset. So there's an example where the idea that Southwest has to not charge fees isn't defensible. They can't protect that with a patent, yeah. but they execute and they built a defensible business model that is not reliant on those kinds of fees for their business bottom line. That's what I mean. It doesn't have to be a unique idea. You just have yes. to have something that's differentiated and defensible. It's You remind me of your Southwest example reminded me of the early days of Netflix and Blockbuster was making so much money from late fees and the Netflix um, disrupted. They got rid that. of all of it. Yeah, b- before Netflix was a content creation studio <laughs> that it is now, back in those days when it was sending DVDs by post and no late fees. So <laughs> exactly the same thing. That That is excellent. Thank you for sharing that case study. Sure. I have a question about you. You have seen personally over so many years, so many founders succeed and so many not do that. What do you think was the differentiating factor there? That's interesting. I do think, how would I describe it? So first and foremost, I think having a good idea is good. Having an emphasis on execution, I think, is critical. I think a lot of people try to rest on the laurels of their idea. And I think resting on the laurels of an idea is a recipe for failure. You have to be focusing on the execution because if it's a good idea, someone's going to come along and try and copy or or compete with you. So even if you can't name a competitor, 
today a direct competitor, and that's often not the case, but even if you say I have no direct competition, that doesn't impress me. What's going to impress me is how well can you execute, and again, it goes back to differentiation and defensibility. How can you lock up your opportunity at the expense of competition taking that opportunity from you? So those that are focused on execution, those that are focused on leverage, I'll give an example. I have one company I am working with now, both an investor and an advisor to this company. They have a software solution that could be a B2C, build the app and put it in the app store and sell it. It could be that model. There's no question it would, it is an app, it is available in the app stores, et cetera. The, the challenge is B2C is a very difficult business. And there is Customer no acquisition is so hard. <laughs> exactly. Customer acquisition is hard. There is no such thing as build it and they will come. You have to find yes. a way to reach them. Now, in general, apps can have very good margins. So our whole approach within that company is to leverage, and that's a key word for me, is those companies that can use leverage to their advantage. So they're using a B to B and a B to C approach to market. And that is going to make them successful, I think, versus anyone who's doing something similar, trying a pure B2C strategy. Because I think that customer acquisition is going to be the destroyer of the business if they were to just do a B2C. And the B2B, meaning they're going to leverage businesses who sell to other businesses whose clients are their end users, or they'll just sell to one other business whose, end, whose clients are their end users. Yeah. Um, but that kind of, those companies that understand that kind of approach to leverage, I think is really important. The other thing that I think makes the difference for at least fundraising purposes, I see this, and I think yes. it carries through to other aspects of the business. Those founders that understand how to tell the, how to properly articulate the problem and the, make it relatable to the audience, whoever the audience is, investors or stakeholders, clients. So telling the story of your business more so than telling me about features and functions of your solution. A lot of founders focus on features and functions, and they should be focusing on use cases and stories. I, I often use the expression, people have a hard time recalling concepts and statistics, but they have a very easy time recalling stories and people. So tell the story of your business and the problem you're solving and the solution you're bringing to market as a story that has people involved. So make up a persona and tell me about that person who's experiencing the problem you're solving and the solution you're bringing to them that will help them overcome that problem. That will resonate much better than telling me about all the features and giving me a bullet list of features and functions of your, your solution. So there's a big difference in founders who understand those concepts and execute on doing those the right way. Excellent advice. I was about to ask you on what is the right thing to do for funding. And you said it on when you do go and pitch it, storytelling and not just focus on the data and the technical side of things. So tell it as a story. That yeah. is great. You know, one thing, one thing I'll add there though, like in a yes. pitch event kind of format, which mm -hmm. is very common in our world. Yes. If you're given three minutes, five minutes, seven minutes, you have to know this, and founders who get it, you, you see it instantaneously. Founders who don't get it, they struggle, and here's what I mean by it. The it that they have to get is they have to understand that the purpose of a pitch event is to intrigue the audience 
so that they want to know more. It is not to jam as much information into the allotted time as humanly possible. There's a big difference. And those founders that come to a six-minute pitch event with 24 slides, they don't get it. Those founders that come there with three or four slides and they're really well articulated and they present it beautifully and they may even finish a few seconds early, they get it. Because they realize all I'm here to do is intrigue you enough to have you think, that's pretty interesting. I'd like to know more about that. Because you're in a pitch event, most in, in most cases, with three, four, five, ten others. And so you yeah. have to stand out. And the only way to stand out is to really properly relate and articulate um, your business, your problem you're solving, the solution you're bringing to it in a way that somebody says, that sounds like I need to learn a little more about that rather than overwhelming people with all the details when just trying to either talk fast or use very small fonts. <laughs> <laughs> very practical and great advice. This is one question that I ask everyone who comes on my podcast, and that is, do you have a ask? What are you looking for? Yeah. No, that's a wonderful opportunity to share what I'm doing. Our objective now, I'm not a traditional startup in, in that sense, so I'm not looking for investors or anything of that sort. What I am looking for is ecosystems, yep. meaning congregations, if you will, of startup founders that want to benefit from good um, access to good Silicon Valley-oriented content and kind of the methodologies and best practices that are being used here in Silicon Valley to grow some wonderful companies and want to you know, take advantage of this period of time, unfortunately, yeah. where the world still is in quite a bit of lockdown and quarantine, but to use that time very efficiently and virtually to enhance their business and, and take an acceleration program. Because we have found that those that are, you could be depressed about the quarantine or you can take it as an opportunity to stay focused and do some real things that you really have been having a hard time finding the time for in when life was normal, so to say. Yes. So we are looking for founders, not just indip- individually, again, in that B2C mindset. We're not trying to find every founder individually. We're trying yes. to find groups of founders that would benefit from having access to that kind of content, those kinds of coaches and mentors and yeah. a community, a community to support them. Being a founder is a very lonely business. I've been it in, is. Uh, I was a serial entrepreneur for a lot of years, even with co-founders. I don't want to say I did it alone. I didn't do it alone. I had business co-founders yes. and business partners in all of my startups. But it's still a very challenging and sometimes lonely journey. And so being part of a, a community that is very supportive and uh, empathetic of what that journey you're on is like is helpful. And so we've tried to create that within our acceleration program, Silicon Valley in your pocket, within our community called Viable. So I'm looking for people who want to participate in those kinds of uh, efforts. Yes, I did um, see on your LinkedIn and other places, this is Viable. I think it's thisisviable.com. Can you tell us a bit more about that and how all that works and what it is used for? Absolutely. It was a little bit of a spin-out of sorts, actually, from the acceleration program. What we realized was that the 
cohorts, and we don't have a traditional cohort that starts at a particular time and ends at a time. We just have a rolling cohort. People join whenever they want. It's a very self-paced program. So at any time, we have a number of people at different stages of of our program, which is a three-month program. And so we spun out the community, and it's now called Viable, and it is at at the website you mentioned, thisisviable.com. The story of, of Viable is really, if you think about some amazing people that we are all maybe familiar with, so I'll just use a few athletes as an example. Think about Tiger Woods, probably one yeah. of the greatest golfers in the history of the game. Think about Serena Williams, one of the best tennis players in the female tennis scene. Uh, yes. Scene. Thank yeah. you. Think about Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, phenomenal yeah. basketball players, iconic basketball players. Hall of Famers, if you will. You think about these people and you say, what, what's common about them? One common thing is they're all at the top of their game. Yeah. Another thing that's common about them, and this extends to business people as well. So there's, you can think about any great CEO. They have the same exact commonality. That's at the top of their game. The, the other common thread that binds those groups of people is they all have a coach or a mentor. Bill yeah. Gates had a coach. Warren Buffett's had a coach. Eric Schmidt from Google talks about one of the greatest pieces of advice he was ever given was to get a coach. Yes. You think about that and you say, maybe part of being one of the ingredients of greatness, and these are all people we've come to admire in their respective fields, maybe one of the ingredients of being able to reach that level of admiration of the world is to have a good coach who's going to help you along the way. And I don't even mean singularly. I think there are multiple yeah. coaches and mentors through your life and your journey. I certainly have mine. Um, yes. That can be beneficial to you. So Viable was built with that concept in mind, is how can we provide to startup founders, because they're no different, they will benefit no differently than others, like I've mentioned, in their game, which is the startup of their uh, whatever their business is, by having good coaches and mentors around them. So we've built this community of amazing coaches. They yeah. come from some of the top companies, some of the ones I've mentioned now, Microsoft yes. and Sony and Google and Netflix and yes. uh, HubSpot in the, in the uh, CRM space nowadays. Uh, I can go on and on. Like Visa, yeah. and, uh, it just goes on and on, the, the number of companies we have coaches from. And on a weekly basis, we provide classes, uh, master classes, on how to do certain things. So we have the lead user experience designer for Netflix. She's one of our coaches. How, if you're in your business and you're trying to build your own user experience, how amazing would it be to have access to that person to help coach and mentor you? And I don't just mean watching the class. You can interact with these people. So that's what we built Viable for. It's a community. It's a marketplace, if you will, of founders on one side that want to learn and be coached and mentored by the best. And it's the best coaches and mentors we've been able to, you know, amass as viable coaches to provide that information. And again, on a weekly basis, we provide live master classes. We have pitch events. I did a pitch event last week. We didn't have any U.S. representation. It was all foreign founders. Yeah. One in South America, two in Africa. I was the American representation of the yes. event as one of the judges and, and orchestrator, if you will, of the yeah. event. So it's truly a global community to provide that coaching to hopefully help these startup founders lift their businesses to a place where maybe they'll be admired for having created an incredible business with the support and help uh, 
of a great community of other founders and of wonderful coaches. That's what Bible is. Excellent. I've put all the links to everything you're doing underneath in the description and YouTube and wherever this goes on all the platforms. That's great. Before we go, I have three sort of quick fire questions. And first sure. one is, what is the book that you are reading right now? The book that I'm reading right now, actually. Or the last have... one you read? Uh, the last one I read, it actually has nothing to do, um, trying to think of the title is setting my mind. It has nothing to do, it's from a, a gentleman who's an author of a book um, yes. that is a very good friend. His book is called Aspire. His name is Kevin Hall. He's a wonderful friend. Kevin runs master classes on uh, just being great people. And he, he has shared a number of things. So his book would be one of the last ones I've read. I've read a couple others in between. But I would say Kevin's is one that I, I would definitely recommend. It's a wonderful book. But he's recommended other books that I've been just picking up here and there and reading a little bit you know, at a time. Excellent. Yes, the reason why I ask is the last book you read or the book you're reading right now is because after all these episododes, I got quite a few times the few same books, <laughs> and I do want my listeners to explore a whole range of things. They could be fiction. It's my, fine. Mine would be different in that regard, because Kevin's book, Aspire, is a wonderful book, yes. but the book, he's referred it, I just recalled the title, he's referred it to me, and I've been, I'm about halfway through it. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. And it's Man's Search Fine. for Meaning. I have heard of that book, but no one has so yeah. far recommended that book. I, I would not be surprised that nobody else has recommended that. I'm, I'm not reading a lot of business books and startup books. I, I'm not saying I know everything I need to know. I'm always happy to learn more, but I read a yes. lot online. And I read a lot of articles, but books are something I sit more when I have time on a plane or, yes. or longer periods of downtime. Um, but exactly. Man's Search for Meaning for, by Viktor Frankl, I think I'm about halfway through it. And it's a very compelling book. And it was referred to me by my other colleague, Kevin, who I mentioned with his book, Aspire. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just writing all that down. Yeah. <laughs> Any podcast that you listen to on a regular basis? I must admit, I do not listen to podcasts very often. It's funny. I'm probably abnormal to your other guests. I don't do a ton of book reading and listen to a ton of podcasts. I read furiously online. I read a lot of articles, oh, and I have a ton of sources that I go and I scour reading and yes. things of that sort. But books or podcasts are not something I do a lot. You know what it is? I find that those take more time. I, I like do. my information in shorter sprints. I'm a bit more of a headline news guy than yes. a one-hour news show guy. And yes. so that's the challenge, I think, for me when it comes to books or podcasts. I need time, and I'm not traveling. When I traveled, I did a lot more of the things we're talking about, listen to things or, uh, you know, exactly longer. Exactly right, yes. Yeah, so I have, I, my, my lack of travel is taking down my reading of books. And same thing for me. I don't read physical books as much because I'm not traveling um, this year. Yeah. <laughs> I understand, totally. Yeah. Um, any recommendations on any do you follow anyone in, on blogs, on Medium, or what do you read online? Any recommendations there? I do read a lot, again, of content. I try to, we keep a repository of content around startup-related concepts yes. and articles that we think can be helpful or reports that might come out from different places around the world. So 
I more read a lot of things like that. And I search for more around keywords than I do follow individuals. So I don't read a lot of people would listen to Peter Thiel or some yeah. other very uh, wonderful people that we can learn a lot from. I'm, I'm certainly not trying to be dismissive of what they can educate me on and others. But I just scour articles on keywords specifically around helping startups. So I focus more on the keywords than I do on the authors. Oh, and I look for great content that can help with, for example, if people are often asking, well, how, how, what do I do about cap table? I keep hearing this term yes. about my cap table. What do I do? So we scour articles from all the various groups like Carta and Certent, all the big cap table management, ShareWorks. Yes. These are the providers. And I'll read a lot of their Take on leadership. It. Yes. Yeah, I'll look at yeah. their thought leadership and pull the articles that I feel will resonate with our audience the best. And we'll put that into our repository. We actually have a repository of hundreds of articles across about 40 different characteristics or keywords that we try to help our founders with. So I'm much more focused at that level than I am on the authors or the sources. I hope that makes sense. Given the it context. does. It does. It is an excellent strategy to go for the keywords rather than the authors or the regular sources. Um, yeah. Because... I'm like you. I also find that it becomes same old. Yeah. The reason why I'm asking these questions is because I got so many people recommend zero to one and the lean startup that I thought, okay, I need to rephrase my question so that yeah. I get some variety and something different for my audience. We um, do recommend, I do recommend lean startup. It happens to be by Eric Reese. It's a great it's, book. It I is. recommend business model canvas kind of things by yes. Steve Blank and some stuff there. Yeah. We use a lot of their methodologies. There's yes. another book actually called Lean Analytics. Lean now Analytics. That's one, yeah, that's one we recommend in our program specifically because it really focuses on what I will call the metrics that matter. That yes. is a big phrase we use a lot with our founders is what are the actual metrics that matter to people? And so yeah. CAC. We talked about customer, customer acquisition. acquisition costs. We talked yes. about CAC or LTV. CAC to LTV, CAC to LTV ratio. Basically. Ratio. So exactly. These are the things where Lean Analytics is an excellent book, and it talks about different businesses and what metrics are most important. So if you're an online marketplace, you might have very different metrics than if you're an app. Yes. You know, like a downloadable app. So, yeah, this is a book I would recommend for founders that are really trying to figure out what is going to be important to predominantly the investor community. But really, they're important to the investor community because they're important to managing and growing your business. So they should be important yeah. to the founders themselves. But that are definitely things in a due diligence kind of environment. You will be asked about, tell me about your CAC to LTV ratio. And yes. you need to know what that all means. It often takes founders by surprise. So that book is definitely one I would recommend to your audience and, and to yourself, perhaps. Excellent advice. Once again, final question for today. And that is, if you had unlimited time, resources and money, what would you work on or what would you build? That's a very funny question for me because I don't do things for typical reasons. I don't do the things I do for financial uh, upside. If there's financial upside, I'm not trying to shy away from it. I do what I do because I absolutely love what I'm doing. I love working with founders. So if I won the $10 million lottery, for example, I'd be doing exactly tomorrow what I'm doing today. I'd be doing exactly next week what I'm doing this week. What I might do is I'd have a higher bank balance. And if the world ever opens up again, I might take a vacation one day. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd buy a better car. I don't know. I'm not a car guy. Uh, but I yeah. really don't do things for those traditional financial uh, reasons. I'm, I'm in a situation, very fortunately, where I, my bills are covered. I'm not living a very expensive lifestyle, particularly now, of course. Nobody is. Yeah. Uh, and so I would be doing exactly what I'm doing. And I do it out of the passion of it more than for the financial gain of it. That's, again, not to say I'm not interested in financial gain, but my primary purpose is to wake up every day looking to the day ahead of me with enthusiasm and excitement, and I'm fortunate that I can do that. Wonderful. It is great talking with you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I got to learn so much, and I'm sure a lot of our audience would have will get to learn all these things in the next few days. So thank you once again, and look forward to the success of This Is Viable platform and Silicon Valley in your pocket. Thank well, you for thank your time. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I appreciate the opportunity and look forward to more in the future with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Want Money, Got Money with Sam Kamani. Hope you enjoyed the show and got some valuable insights that would help you in your startup or your business. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate this show on your favorite platform. It would be extremely helpful and I just cannot tell you how much I would appreciate that.